My name is Lisa Souter, and I'm the Executive Director for Beans Cafe and the Children's Lunchbox. And, uh, boy, we are really busy trying to serve our community during uh, the COVID-19, you know, pandemic. It's had incredible impact on our programs, which, of course, is Beans Cafe, uh, which is emergency shelter, usually cold weather, overnight shelter, and meals for people year-round, and Children's Lunchbox, which feeds hungry children right here in Anchorage. So Beans Cafe is currently providing safe temporary shelter for a maximum of 480 people, 24 hours a day, and is utilizing the Sullivan Arena and Ben Boki Ice Arena. All that started on March 21st. How did you approach that situation? Um, you know, it was a really big lift for a small agency. Uh, we were approached by the municipality of Anchorage to ask if we could uh, help them to establish an emergency shelter. It was necessary because of the CDC guidelines, uh, which were recommending that people in shelter be uh, separated six feet apart when sleeping. And this really wasn't very compatible with most of our current emergency shelters. Uh, so it was going to cause a huge um, decrease in the number of people that would be able to access their traditional shelters. So initially, uh, it was identified by the Muni uh, to find a space, and the first site was Ben Bokey. And it was quickly realized as we started getting numbers back from the shelters as to what this six-foot rule was going to do to the number of people they could accommodate that Ben Boki Arena simply wasn't going to provide enough capacity. And at that point, uh, the municipality added Sullivan Arena into the equation. So it has been an incredible uh, ramp-up situation very quickly uh, to make sure that we're, you know, getting people uh, far enough apart to, to follow those CDC guidelines. For the people who aren't familiar with Sullivan Arena and Ben Bokey, could you maybe explain how big these places are? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's a, it's a quite a daunting task when you walk into these empty ice arenas. And we've literally taken three hockey rinks, uh, two in Ben Bokey. They're little smaller rinks. Um, and each of those having a floor capacity um, to sleep 120 people. Um, and then over to the Sullivan Arena, which is a really large event and venue space that uh, hosts hockey, hosts UAA hockey. And we used to have the Alaska Aces, uh, AHL hockey teams. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a full-size hockey arena. Um, I think, gosh, I don't know the capacity of seating in there, but it, it's definitely, you know, for many years was our only arena and where every concert and every major event and high school graduation and every big event was ever held at. So to turn those into a, a safe shelter um, was, was, was quite the task and certainly took um, a lot of resources and a lot of creativity and uh, just immense uh, operational expertise. <laughs> For sure. What kind of resources are we talking about here? So as a partner with the municipality, um, we came on board um, even before we had a contract in place with them just to try and kind of work through what could this look like. Robin Ward was our primary contact with the municipality, and she has been just amazing. This woman has put in I don't even know how many hours and blood and sweat and tears working alongside our team, uh, specifically Kim Koval, who was our deputy director slash chief operating officer, who's really been the one to stand up the operations side of this. And I honestly don't know if there's anybody else in the state besides those two women that could have done this in the time frame that it was done. Uh, you know, we took a wide open arena and 
to ice skating rinks and have turned them now into safe shelter and food services for up to 480 people. It's, It's pretty incredible. Have there been any unforeseen obstacles? Oh, yes. <laughs> Lots, many. Um, none of them insurmountable, <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the first thing is uh, the initial capacity, you know, that we were kind of prepared for the first few nights was supposed to be 280 people because that was the number we figured had been displaced by um, Beans Cafe, by us ceasing any client operations at our former site on 3rd Avenue and moving everyone over to Boki and Sullivan and the consolidation of services from Catholic Social Services at Brother Francis Shelter. Um, and we saw way more than 280 people, and it continues to climb. Um, some of the other operational issues that have proved to be much more challenging than we anticipated were um, showers. Uh, we really kind of thought, well, the Muni's going to handle that, and that's going to be great. We're going to get some shower trailers, bring them in. People will have access to showers. Yeah, no, evidently there's a couple of them around the area, but they're buried in snow and nobody's ever operated them in the winter and nobody knows if they'd even work right now. Um, so we've really had to go to, you know, plan A, B, C, D kind of thing and, and figure out another option. And right now we're hoping today to actually start um, having showers available at Sullivan Arena. Um, but again, when you're dealing with, you know, this type of uh, client, this is not your normal population and we have to put a lot of safeguards in place for the protection of our staff and for our clients and so we're working with trying to contract with um, home health agencies so that we can have you know qualified people I, you know it's hard to ask my frontline staff to you know assist a client or oversee clients getting showers that's not appropriate um, so just trying to figure out what's going to be the the best case scenario and keep keep folks safe and right now that's what we're working through probably our biggest obstacle right now, but I think by the end of the day, we should have it ironed out. So are people just sleeping in these temporary shelters or is there food also being made there? No, we have food uh, provided there. We're not making the food there. All of the food is being prepared at our um, former Beans Cafe. It's still Beans Cafe uh, at 1101 East 3rd. We've turned that into just a uh, production facility um, and not serving any clients out of there just to make sure that we could preserve the integrity of that commercial kitchen, you know, as this virus continues to spread, we we don't know what that's going to look like. So we really had to uh, act quickly uh, to make sure that, you know, we're able to continually access that that asset and be able to continue to produce the meals. And, And that also involved, you know, shutting down our community volunteer program and our client volunteer program in that building, which has really put a strain on our resources. You know, we have two chefs, a program slash food services director and an accountability person. And that's it. And we're, you know, preparing meals and now transferring them over to Ben Bokey and Sullivan for people. It takes a lot more work to prepare individual meals than it does to do a congregate meal like we've traditionally done at Beans Cafe. So you guys are very much working with a skeleton crew. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And we, and we typically always have, but what we've had is incredible community support through volunteers. You know, every day we probably had 20 or 30 community volunteers that would come in and help uh, prep, help serve the meals, help clean up the clients that, that help every single day. And, and now all of that is gone. And so it, it's certainly a whole new world, and I give our team just incredible um, kudos for literally not missing a meal service. Um, you know, not only are we providing all the meals 
on site now at Boki and Sullivan. We're con- continuing some meal contracts we have to provide meals for formerly homeless people at Carlick Manor, um, about 20 individual clients that are housed in Rural Cap or with South Central Foundation, and meals for the medical respite program at Brother Francis Shelter. Um, and, of course, our leaving campus for client services left a void for Brother Francis Shelter, who's still operating and who is now sheltering people 24 hours a day, which is something they haven't done. They've primarily been a night shelter. So we're trying to help them fill gaps by providing up to 109 lunches every day for them, too. So it's a big lift. <laughs> what has surprised you the most? I think um, the kindness of so many people and the support um, from all different directions, you know, whether it's been uh, major businesses who have stepped forward to help offer financial resources to small businesses. You know, I think of our major businesses like Alaska Club just announced yesterday $10,000 challenge grant to help us with children's lunchbox with the pantry pack program. And we'll talk a little bit about that, that next. To small businesses, small restaurants, I mean small restaurants like Altura Bistro, uh, you know, Chef Nate is trying to keep his staff working and uh, came up with the idea of, you know, for every five uh, soups that he sells, he would donate one to Beans. And then people just called, started calling him and just ordering soup to go to Beans. Um, so it's it's really been so many, I think, trying to find win-wins for everyone. How do we keep our restaurant and hospitality industry alive through this? How do we make sure we're feeding everybody that needs it? And and how do we all come together to do that? And it's been really inspiring to see people step up from all different areas and and respond and say, yes, I can help. Or here's what we can do and coming to us with ideas and asking what they can do. So you said you wanted to get back to Children's Lunchbox just a second ago, talking about Alaska Club and how they're helping out. Yeah, that's that's been a, another um, kind of great addition to to the efforts we're having there. And just to kind of back up so that your listeners understand, you know, Beans Cafe operates two programs. We operate the traditional Beans Cafe program, and then we have Children's Lunchbox, which is a child nutrition program. And what our programs typically would look like in, in a normal or uh, pre-COVID-19 world would be we offer out-of-school meals, prepared meals, at a number of sites. Usually it's 12 to 14 sites where kids can go after school during the school year and get a get a supper. Um, during the summer, we offer meals seven days a week. Uh, just last summer, we started doing weekend meals at the Anchorage Market uh, because we knew there were very few options for children on the weekends. There were several sites, you know, during Monday through Friday during the week but very few places for kids to go to get a prepared meal on weekends. And then we also work with eight of the Title I elementary schools to provide weekend backpack food programs and in-school pantries. So we really just started the pantry packs this year as kind of a pilot project as we were trying to kind of figure out the sustainability of the backpack program. So mm-hmm. what a pantry pack is is a shelf-stable uh, meal kit for a family of four. And so we have breakfast meal kits and we have lunch slash dinner meal kits. And so we had, you know, been distributing those again through the eight Title I elementary schools we were working with. Well, when school shut down, we realized this was going to be a problem in many ways. Um, you know, we were kind of waiting to, to see what the school district's response would be because obviously they have 
huge resources on a scale that we we can't even come close to and so grateful for for them stepping in and and trying to do everything they can to make sure that their students are fed as well and then it was uh, figuring out what are the gaps and how can we uh, supplement those programs so uh, ASD you know moved forward with providing breakfast and lunch that students could come into different schools and pick up their breakfast and lunch and take them home so we immediately started uh, distributing the pantry packs because we weren't clear yet uh, if we would be able to do any of our uh, reimbursable meals through the child nutrition program. Um, so we wanted to make sure we were still pushing food out immediately to families. So we started pushing out the pantry packs, uh, doing distributions Monday through Friday at Fairview and Bernard Rec Centers in the parking lot in a drive through model, you know, trying to practice that social distancing and it's continuing to evolve. And what we're realizing is that we may potentially need 50,000 of these pantry packs uh, to tide families over from now until the time school starts back up, you know, in late August. Mm -hmm. Well, every pantry pack costs about $10 right now in food costs, and we're working on ways to bring that down and talking with Food Bank and uh, food wholesalers and distribution points everywhere we can. But um, for now, our cost is about $10, and so we need to raise potentially $500,000 to make sure we can provide 200,000 meals to families that are really struggling, and it's only getting worse every day for our families. You know, we're seeing increased unemployment, more and more uh, businesses shutting down, fewer people having access to work, or if they do have work, having reduced hours. Um, so we're we're pairing those pantry packs right now with two uh, dinners that uh, children can take home with them. Uh, we're distributing. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday right now, and we're planning to bring on a third site on uh, hopefully on Monday. So we're still finalizing details on that. And I know that you are already an extremely busy person, but do you feel any busier in the moment? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sleep has been um, somewhat elusive. Um, I think a lot of our team, you know, we're running on a few hours of sleep every night because when you're operating a 24-hour facility, um, in a completely new, never done before in Alaska and probably done very few places um, anywhere, um, it, it's it's a lot. And, you know, our priority has to be on the safety, you know, our health, safety, and environment model that we always go back to and make sure that we're having that continual focus on that because if we can't provide um, that healthy, safe environment, um, we can't do anything else. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's been uh, incredibly stressful, but also incredibly um, rewarding to see uh, it come together as quickly as it did. You know, we got a signed contract back from the Muni, and I think it was 5.39 p.m. on Thursday, and we opened up uh, Boki and Solverina at 10 a.m. on Saturday. So that was a pretty incredible turnaround that was really only made possible by so many people. And I have to say the facilities folks at Boki and Sullivan were just unbelievable. Randy especially and Greg Spears and just their whole team. I mean, there's so many people that, that really just worked incredible hours to, to get this up and operational. So getting back to those temporary shelters, what do they look like for someone like myself who hasn't been inside one? Um, as you're walking in, like, what do you see? Sure. Um, well, the first thing is you um, kind of approach the shelter. Um, you're going to see a list of items that can and cannot be brought into shelter and some of the basic rules. Uh, you know, they aren't different, really, than the same rules Beans Cafe has had since 1979. And, you know, that's no 
alcohol, no drugs, no weapons. Um, and we're just having to really, really enforce that. The one thing we did have to add to that list because times have changed since 1979 is we, we can't allow any syringes or sharps into the facility for many reasons. And so we're asking people, you know, please kind of self-check this. The first few days we had a dumpster uh, right outside so that if people had items they needed to dispose of, they could do it right there. Um, we've also had to institute a kind of one bin per client policy just because even though we're dealing with a tremendous amount of space, we, we can't allow people to bring an unlimited number of items. Um, it's just impossible to screen them all to make sure that it's all safe, that everything's uh, suitable to be brought in. Um, so, you know, asking clients to, to pare some things down. And so as a client then uh, comes forward into the, the doors, we're partnering with Phoenix Protective Services, who have been just another amazing partner in all of this and helping at the front end so that our staff can really be um, that helper for our clients and not be the one that has to, to do all of the security screening that's necessary when you're operating on this scale. So mm -hmm. people come through, it's almost like going to the airport. You're going to walk through a metal detector, something buzzes, we're going to wand, they're going to wand you, Phoenix is doing all that. You know, our staff's not trained to do that. Um, so they're doing all of that. And then our staff helps uh, clients kind of, they need to prioritize what's in their bag and how much they can bring in. And then folks then proceed to the check-in area with our staff where they, if it's the first time they're checking in, they get their nice big tote uh, that they can put their items in. They're assigned a wristband and everyone is assigned a cot or a mat uh, if we have a cot or mat available. And we have actually run out of cots and mats uh, at some time. So we have more on order as quickly as we can get them up here. Um, but typically they get a wristband. It has their first name, last initial, uh, indicate by color which facility they're in, whether they're in Sullivan or in Bokey, and then their cop number. Uh, they then uh, are greeted by our uh, support team uh, that the municipality has contracted with, Team One, who is providing all the medical on site. So everybody is then uh, screened with a temperature screening and assessed for, for any outward signs of COVID-19 because we obviously want to stop that at the door. So that's recorded along uh, our, our staff right now is manually having to track every single person in and out of the facility, which, as you can imagine, is a process. Uh, so we're yeah. looking at how we can uh, kind of digitize that and, and move into at least, you know, 1993 or four and try <laughs> to get this computerized. But for uh, right now, it's manual. And so... Uh, you know, the, every person's name is written down, their date of birth, uh, the temperature when they came in, what cot number they were assigned, and then they're, they're shown where, where their space is going to be. Um, so it's a lot. You know, it's, again, it, it's a moving target in many ways, and we're making, you know, adjustments every day. We're talking with our team about our process kind of of the plan do, you know, uh, act change and, and, and let's figure it out and figure continue making continuous improvements for, for quality improvement because that's what we want. We want excellent quality and we want a safe environment. And, and that's really the focus right now. So the people in these temporary shelters, how do they feel about COVID-19? Are they concerned? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's concerned. Um, I think a lot of people are relieved to have some space to spread out. Um, I think they feel a lot more comfortable now. You know, traditional uh, emergency shelter, you literally had people, you know, shoulder to shoulder practically, many times on mats on floors. Um, we do still have people, some people on mats on, 
on the floor, which isn't ideal, but we don't have enough cots at this point. We're working on it, um, but at least they have some space. And I think that has kind of given everybody a chance to breathe a little bit, um, and they know they have a place to be. There was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen, where would people go, what would that look like, who was going to be there to help them, um, and also where were they going to eat. So, you know, the meal service is another big component of it. So we're using the upstairs at Sullivan Arena, um, both sides of the concourse, and serving meals out of the snack bars. So Sullivan Arena right now is housing all of our single adult males. And then Ben Boki is housing our LGBTQ folks, our single women, and our couples. Um, so we have times where Ben Boki folks come over and eat uh, dinner at Sullivan. We just shifted in the last day or so to provide breakfast and lunch on site at Boki because we realized it was a lot of moving back and forth that didn't really seem necessary. So just continuing to, to tweak it and, and, and figure out the most efficient way to make sure everybody gets their needs met. How many people in the shelter are in the demographic that's most vulnerable to the most severe effects of COVID-19, meaning they're older or already have compromised immune systems? Uh, you know, it's something we're certainly concerned about. It's hard for us to assess that because, we, again, we don't have a, a digital database right now. We're trying to get information into HMIS on a, on a daily basis. Um, but we don't really have that data right now in terms of how many people are over, you know, 60, 65. Um, typically, I, w- I anticipate or I would guess probably about mm, 20% of our population is uh, would be considered uh, elderly. We know many of them have underlying health conditions, but we don't really have a way to track that right now. Um, in partnership with Brother Francis Shelter, we uh, did ask that the folks with some more severe physical limitations stay at Brother Francis Shelter because, you know, in a mass shelter situation, we just don't have the access um, to resources that those folks need. It's really not a super handicap accessible uh, facility at this point just because of, of the way things have to be with this many people. So that, that has been working out well and keeping people, uh, hopefully, with some of those higher risk needs and some mobility issues um, in a different population. Mm-hmm. What do you think next week will look like? I think next week um, it's just going to continue, hopefully, to get smoother operationally for us. I think we'll kind of settle out with uh, the number of people that will be staying in shelter, uh, settle into a little bit more of a routine for folks, have showers and laundry services available. Uh, Those are things, you know, that need to be worked out. We're trying to figure out an MOU so that we can get some partners in to help people with um, diversion and possibly family reunification and housing uh, treatment. Right now, many of the service providers are only doing remote services. They aren't meeting with clients face-to-face. So we're looking at options about how we can stand up something that will provide for that. Um, that was um, somebody yesterday from South Central Foundation from their intensive case management, and we kind of brainstormed some ideas. You know, we've got our partners from Catholic Social Services willing to, to come in and deliver some services. We just have to figure out, um, you know, an MOU and some, some liability issues. You know, this is, this is, again, something nobody's ever done before. So we want to make sure we don't jeopardize anyone, uh, health, safety, environment again. Um, just yesterday, we were notified by the Rasmussen Foundation that we will be receiving some additional funding 
to put in place our own navigation uh, team so that they will be, you know, under our umbrella and able to operate seamlessly in the facility. So I think that's going to be really important. So I anticipate next week we will start posting for a couple of those uh, positions to try and get that stood up and start helping to navigate people out of shelter. That's ultimately our goal is, you know, how do we have a conversation with every person coming through there being, how do we get you out of this? Nobody wants to be an emergency shelter in this type of situation. No one. Mm -hmm. And what are the options? And if they aren't an option today, can they be in an option in a month? You know, what do we need to do to get you to a different solution? Do you have any stories that are emblematic of this situation happening right now? Oh, gosh. Yes. Uh, so many, you know, um, people, you know, that want to try and uh, potentially go home to their village. Uh, I've got a, a, a lovely couple that um, they're probably in their, it's sometimes hard to tell, but I would guess um, early 60s. And they have a family home. She's Alaska Native. He's not. But she has a family home in Chivac that they could go home to. But they have no income right now. So even if we were to get them there, once they got there, they would have no money for food, no money to pay um, heat, um, you know, some of the basic necessities you've got to have. So trying to figure out what could this look like, uh, how do we either find you employment how do we get you connected with other benefits that could potentially enable you to be stable there? Um, you know, there's just so many missing links right now for many, many folks. And and this particular couple, you know, they have struggled greatly with their sobriety for years. And and finally, in the last uh, couple of months, made, made some pretty significant changes and um, entered some treatment where they were able to um, get on Vivitrol and have stopped drinking. And to see their eyes clear and their faces um, brighter and have them be able to start to plan and think about what the future looks like is is so amazing. And so now it's up to us and our community to help them find those solutions. So, you know, it's so many different stories. And, you know, we know that on a busy day down at Bees Cafe, we could see over 500 unique individuals. And people many times ask me, you know, what's the answer? And Honestly, you know, I need 512 different answers because everybody has an individualized situation and they need an individualized approach. There's no mm -hmm. one-size-fits-all approach that's going to solve this or it would have been done by now. Mm -hmm. So it's how do we really help people one person at a time, help them to problem solve, you know. We can't afford to put every person that's experiencing homelessness into permanent supportive housing. It's, it's not possible, nor can we afford to put every person that's currently homeless into a one-bedroom apartment. You know, we know young professionals have roommates because even when working and with a college degree, they can't afford rent in Alaska. So how do we think that people who have experienced homelessness or trauma or addiction are going to be able to do that? We have to come up with different models. And how do we do that within the existing housing stock we have today? Not mm -hmm. what is it going to look like five years from now. What's it going to look like tomorrow, next week, next month? So we're, we're having conversations with lots of partners about what that can look like. Um, one of the, the ideas that I really like is um, something that's used by different housing providers around universities. Um, my daughter went to college in Portland, and there were several private, you know, college housing options right around the university where they lease 
not just the entire apartment to one individual, but they may take a two-bedroom apartment and lease it to four people. That way, it honestly reduces the risk for the landlord because if one person falls out or there's a problem with their income, with their sobriety, whatever the issue may be, they still have 75% of the rent left. They haven't lost 100% of the rent. Um, and, you know, by looking at how do we do some of that in Anchorage and provide that mediation that's needed so that we can help people be successful in that model. But it's going to cost a lot less money than trying to find, you know, a seven or $800 per person subsidy for every apartment. We, we, we just can't do that. We have to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for everything you're doing. I mean, it's, it's people like you who are keeping this city running. Well, we have amazing partners, and I have to say our team um, at Dean's Cafe uh, and Children's Lunchbox, every single person has just stepped up and worked weekends and nights and just doing anything they can, you know, for everything from our, you know, finance people, you know, spraying mats with bleach solution, wiping them down before clients were moved over, uh, just, just doing whatever was necessary uh, to get this operation up has, has been really um, humbling. It really has. And the response of our community and more than ever, we're going to need the community support. And right now that that is uh, going to need in, to be really in financial uh, donating uh, cash because we can't utilize our usual core volunteers. We have to hire more staff. Um, we have to purchase more food because we know uh, we are not able to get the amount of donations we've previously seen. So it, it's a whole new model uh, of doing business. You know, the other thing we're trying to really do is look for different um, partners and different supply chains. Uh, I'm really concerned about interrupting the consumer supply chain. You know, we know people were completely freaked out about toilet paper and and other necessities. And, you know, I don't want uh, Beans Cafe and Children's Lunchbox to have to be taking things that should be on the shelves at Fred Meyer Cars or Costco. Let's figure out other ways to get those items, places that the average consumer can't go in and purchase from. Um, we're just trying to be creative. You know, yesterday we were virtually out of gloves and I'm like, okay, every normal place you would get gloves is out of gloves. Where do I go? And so we call our friends at Subway and, you know, they're not as busy as they've been in the past and they have good reserves. So they were able to donate gloves to us. And it's really about just kind of figuring out a whole new world. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written Hosted and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.